Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. I live in Southern California, Los Angeles. This is Baja Norte. If you do not speak Spanish in Los Angeles, you're missing out on a whole lot. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. And for a very limited time, LeVar Burton Reed's listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash LeVar. That's rosettastone.com slash L-E-V-A-R. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and this is LeVar Burton Reads. In every episode, I handpick a different piece of short fiction and I read it to you. The only thing these stories have in common is that I love them, and I hope you will too. Well, I've gotten a lot of requests over time for a Shirley Jackson tale, and... I am happy to indulge those requests today. After all, tis the season for spooky stories, right? You've probably read Shirley Jackson's story, The Lottery. Most of us have in school as a kid. Or maybe you've read or seen The Haunting of Hill House. Shirley was mostly known for her horror and mystery writing for the American Gothic. And to me, she's really associated with a particular kind of feeling. The not-quite-right, the familiar, imbued slowly with terror. Something just kind of prickling at the back of your neck as you have a dawning realization. This story comes from a collection of her works entitled Dark Tales that was published by Penguin Classics. Now, when we begin, it feels like our narrator... Catherine is telling us a ghost story about something that happened to her and her friend, who's only referred to by a single letter Y. But Ms. Jackson lets the story slip and change shape, and we end up in a quite different place. I found this story really challenging and fun, and we'll talk more about that at the end. Please check out the written content advisory if you are so inclined, and if you're ready, let's take a deep breath. And begin. The story we used to tell by Shirley Jackson. This is the story that Y and I used to tell. Used to tell in the quiet of the night. In the hours of the quiet of the night. And the moonlight would come moving forward, moving close. Used to whisper to each other in the night. And I 
I would say had to go first, with the moonlight making white patterns in her hair. She would shake her head and say I had to go first. Remember, she would say, in this very house, that night, remember? And the picture, and the moonlight, and the way we laughed. We had sat on the foot of the bed, the way we used to when we roomed together in school, talking together and laughing sometimes in spite of the grief that filled Wise's great house. It was only a month or so after her husband's funeral, I remember, and yet being together again, just the two of us, was somehow enough to make Wise smile sometimes and even occasionally laugh again. I had been wise enough not to remark on the fact that Y had closed off the rooms of the house in which she had lived with her husband and had moved into an entire new wing of the old place. But I liked her little bedroom, quiet and bare, with no room for books and only the one picture on the wall. It's a picture of the house, Y said to me. See, you can barely see the windows of this very room. It's before my grandfather-in-law remodeled it, which is why the new wing isn't there. (laughs) It's a beautiful old place, I said. I almost wish he hadn't changed it so much. Plumbing, Y said. There's nothing wrong with plumbing. No, I said, but... I'm glad you've reopened the old wing. It must have been a gorgeous place in, say, your grandfather-in-law's time. And we looked at the picture of the old, old house standing tall against the sky, with the windows of this very room shining faintly through the trees, and the steep, winding road coming through the gates and down to the very edge of the picture. (laughs) I'm glad the glass is there, I said, giggling. (laughs) I'd hate to have a landslide start on that mountain and come down into our laps. Into my bed, you mean? Y said. I don't know if I'll be able to sleep with the old place overhead. Grandpop's probably still in it, too, I said. He's wandering around in a nightcap with a candle in the old barn. Plotting improvements, Y pulled the covers up over her head. I told her, God save us from all reformers. And went across the hall to my own room, pulled the heavy curtains to shut out the moonlight, and went to bed. And the next morning, Y was gone. I woke up late had breakfast downstairs with a first assistant footman or something of the sort presiding. Even Y, married for four years into a butler-keeping establishment, had never found out which one to send for to bring tea in the afternoons, and had finally given up completely and taken to serving sherry, which she could pour herself from a decanter on the sideboard and finally settled down to read, believing that Y would sleep late and come down in her own sweet time. One o'clock was a little late, however, and when the menagerie began announcing lunch to me 
I went after Y. She wasn't in her room. The bed had been slept in, and none of the menagerie knew where she was. More than that, no one had seen or heard of her since I had left her the night before. Everyone else had thought, as I did, that she was sleeping late. By late afternoon, I had decided to call Wise family lawyer, John, who lived on an adjoining estate and had been a close friend of Wise's husband and a kind advisor to Y. And by evening, Wise lawyer had decided to call the police. At the end of the week, nothing had been heard from or of Y, and the police had changed their theory of kidnapping to one of suicide. The lawyer came to me one of those afternoons with a project for closing up the house. I dread saying it, Catherine, but he shook his head. I'm afraid she's dead. How can she be? I kept crying out, I remember. I tell you, I was with her all that evening. We talked, and she was happier than she had been for weeks since her husband died. That's why I think she's dead, he said. She was heartbroken. She had nothing to keep her alive. She had plans. She was going to sell this house and travel. She was going to live abroad for a while, meet people, try to start life over again. Why, I was going with her. We talked about it that night, and we laughed about the house. She said the picture would fall on her bed. My voice trailed off. It was, I know certainly, the first time I had thought of the picture since I had left Y in her room, with the moonlight coming in and shining on her pale hair on the pillow. And I began to think. Wait until tomorrow, I begged him. Don't do anything for a day or two. Why, she might come back tonight. He shook his head at me despairingly. But he went away and left me alone in the house. I called the menagerie and ordered my things moved into Y's room. The full moon had turned into a lopsided creature, but there was still moonlight enough to fill the room with a haunted light when I lay down in Y's bed, looking into the empty windows in the picture of a house. I fell asleep thinking miserably of Wise's cheerful conviction that the old man was loose in the picture, plotting improvements. The moonlight was still there when I woke up, and so was the old woman. She was hanging on the inside of the glass of the picture, gibbering out at me, and she looked twenty feet high, standing in front of that picture of the house. I sat up in bed and backed as far away from the picture as I could, realizing in the one lucid moment I had before the cold terror of that thing hit me that she was on the inside of the glass and couldn't get out. Then, suddenly, 
She moved aside, and I could see the road leading down from the house, and while I watched, Y came through the gates, running and waving desperately at me. I could feel my eyes getting wider and wider, and the back of my neck getting colder and colder, and then I knew that I had been right, and that Y had been caught in some malevolence of the old house, and I began sobbing in thankfulness that I had found her in time. I picked up my slipper and smashed the glass of the picture and held out my hands to Y to hurry her on toward me. And then I saw that the old woman, no longer hanging on to the inside of the glass, was now free and in the room with me, and I could hear her laughing. I fell back on the bed in a wild attempt to shove the old woman back into the picture, and I could just see Y dropping her hands in helpless grief, turn around, and start slowly back up the road to the house. Then the room went out from under me, and the glass on the picture closed around me. I was waving at you to go away, Y was saying over and over. You should have left me here and gone away. We can't ever get out now, either of us. You should have gone away. I opened my eyes and looked around. I was in the dining room of the house, but so changed and gloomy. It was dark, and there was no furniture, no ornamentation. The place was still and damp. No plumbing, either, Y said dryly, noticing the bewilderment on my face. This picture was painted before the improvements were put in. But, I said, Hide, Y whispered. She pushed me into a corner out of the light of the one candle on the floor. Oh my God, I said, and grabbed Y's hands. Through the doorway came the old man, giggling and pulling at his beard. He was followed by the old woman, silent now, but with a glittering grin and half-waltzing. Young ladies, the old man called in a shrill, cracked voice, looking eagerly about the room. He picked up the candle and began going to the corners with it. Young ladies, he cried, come out. We are going to celebrate. Tonight there is to be a ball. Why, I said. He was coming toward us. There you are, there you are, lovely young ladies, shy over their first ball. Come ahead, young ladies. Why gave me one look and then moved slowly forward. The old man waved the candle at me, calling, Come along, don't be too demure. No partners then, you know. And I followed Y into the room. The old man waved at the woman then, saying, Let the musicians start now. And our first ball began. The music did not materialize, but the old man danced solemnly, first with Y and then with me, while the old crone sat dreamily in the corner, swinging the candle in time. 
While the old man was dancing with Y, he would wave at me roguishly as they passed, calling out, Wallflower! And something that was very like a grin would come over Y. And once, when he was dancing with me and we passed Y, sitting on the floor in abject misery, he cried out sternly, Come now, look gay! Honey catches more flies than vinegar, you know? And Y, actually, began to laugh. No one could possibly say that I enjoyed myself at my first ball. But you see, I still thought I was lying on Y's bed, dreaming of the picture. Later, when the old man had limped off to bed after kissing our hands gallantly, Y and I sat on the dining room floor and talked about it. In spite of the icy touch of the old man's fingers which lingered on our hands, in spite of the chill of the stone floor and the memory of the old crone's cackling, we sat there in the dark together and told each other that it was all a horrible dream. Y said, I've been here for a long time. I don't know how long, but every night there's been a ball. I shivered. He's a lovely dancer, I said. Isn't he, though? Y agreed. I know who he is, she said after a few minutes. He's grandpop-in-law. He died in this house crazy. You might have told me before I came to visit you, I said. I thought he'd stay dead, Y said. The South Dakota Stories, Volume 5. South Dakota seemed like the perfect place to unplug, but I ended up connecting to the world around me. A world where each sunset was painted, where I felt adventures pulse with every step, and where cold water trickling, pine swaying, and grunting bison became my favorite soundtracks. I just wish I didn't have to leave. There's so much South Dakota, so little time. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting you're working hard real hard and you're thirsty you need vitamins nutrients for peak performance and energy and your plants do too Aw, i mean just look at the little guy water soluble plant food from miracle grow is full of essential nutrients just a little scoop into your watering can and boom instant feeding and bigger more beautiful plants it's kind of like a sports drink for your plants you may have to suffer from heat but your plants do not Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. 
The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Now, let's get back to our story. We sat there, not talking, until finally the room began to grow lighter and the dusk in the house was brightened with sunlight. I ran to the window, but why laughed? Wait, she said gloomily. Outside the window, I could see the trees that surrounded the old house and the road down to the gates. Beyond the gates, the trees prevented my seeing much, but I did manage to make out light and color and the Outlines of Y's bed. Y came over to the window and stood beside me. Now do you know why I keep saying I'm dreaming? She demanded. But I turned around and looked at her. But you aren't, I said. No, Y replied after a minute. I'm not. We stood close together then looking out over the trees and the gate and beyond them, ridiculously, maddeningly, to the room that would mean freedom. Why, I said finally, this isn't true. <laughs> it's, I began to laugh at last, <laughs> it's outrageous, I shouted. And why, began to laugh too. And for a time, why, and I, hidden away among the trees around the house, planned an escape. We're completely helpless unless someone comes into the room, Y said. And we're completely helpless as long as these two old wrecks wander around loose. Remember how I thought you were waving me on when I couldn't hear you through the glass? I said, but if the old woman hadn't been there, we looked at each other. Why is she here? I said finally. Why shook her head? It's not as though she wasn't already dead. I began and finished weakly. Probably. And that night, while the old man prepared the room for the ball, why asked him who the woman was, and one of your aunts, my dear, he chuckled, pinching Wise cheek, and, and I never saw a prettier girl at that. He shook his head sadly. She's aged a good deal since we've lived here, though. Not so pretty nowadays, are you, old hag? He screamed suddenly and ran over to the old woman to give her a shove that sent her rocking back and forth, giggling wildly and nodding her head. Has she been here long? Why asked timidly. But the old man skipped back and forth, pirouetting with exaggerated grace. No questions, young ladies, no questions. Pretty heads should be empty, you know. That was what decided Why and me. The next day, our plans were made, and it all had to be done fast. 
I do not like to remember what we did. And Y swears now that it is all gone from her mind. But I know as well as she does that we stuffed a pillow over the old man's face while he slept and hanged him to a tree afterward in an ecstasy of hatred which spent itself on him and left us little eagerness for the old woman. But we finished it and never went back to the forest behind the castle where the two bodies still hang, for all I know. It's as I said then. We don't know if we can kill them, but we do know that if they're not dead, they're still tied up. And then, weak and happy and laughing, we lay all day in the sun near the gates, waiting for someone to come into the room. How long has it been, why, that we've been held here? A year, I guess. This muffled from Wise face hidden in her arms. Or maybe more. It hasn't been more than a week, I said. It's been years, Y said again. And how much longer was it that we waited? The room, which we could see from the gates, had been dismantled. How bitterly we repented of the time spent away from the view of the room, the time lost while someone had taken up the carpets in the room, had taken away the linen and the mattress from the bed, had taken down the curtains and stripped the room bare of everything but dust. Where had we been, and who would come now to an empty and forsaken room? But it was why, as always, who thought of it first. Why didn't they take the picture down then? She said. They've emptied the room and left the picture still hanging. They must know something. They must believe that the picture has something to do with us. They'd know the room was haunted since the two of us disappeared from there, Why began, and no one will ever come into it for that reason, I finished. We were there long enough for the ivy on the house to grow a quarter inch before someone came to rescue us. We had often speculated as to who would come. Both of us had believed that it would be a stranger come to see for himself if he could solve the secret of the room. But when our rescuer finally arrived one evening, it was John. I saw him first while Y slept, and when I woke her to tell her it was John, she cried for the first time since we had given up hope. We lay in the grass before the gates, waiting for the moon to rise so John could see us and let us out. We watched him put down a blanket on the empty bed and lie down to stare directly into the picture. In the half-darkness that meant the moon was rising, we saw him lying there watching for us. And as the moon rose slowly, Coming toward the picture, 
we stood by the gates, clinging to each other and trembling with excitement. Even before the full light was upon us, we were racing down to the road to him, to the glass that he must break. I remember falling once and stumbling to my feet to run on with blood on my face and hands, crying out to John, and I believe now that it was during that moment wasted in getting to my feet that I knew exactly because I heard wise voice calling, Come, John! Come on, John! Come on! And I knew that I was screaming too and shrieking at the top of my lungs. And John was sitting up in the bed and screaming too. And he put up his foot and kicked at the glass and broke it. At last. And that is how we tell it. Why? And I. In the quiet of the night. In the hours of the quiet of the night. With the moonlight moving close while we wait in the secret of the night. And John runs constantly about the house screaming and beating the walls. For I have no partner now in the evenings. And why and John do not like to dance alone. I will tell you that this story was particularly tricky for me because the first time I read it, it just read as a great sort of eerie, spooky tale. But as it came time to record it and I got into it, I really realized that the writer is playing not only with time, but with place where outside in the world as we know it, then we're inside this other world of the, the picture and, and what's going on in there. And the, the, the story structure hardly gives any clues as to where we are, when we are. And for me as the reader, with the job of, of making sure that I am locating you, the reader, in the appropriate place and time throughout the telling of the tale. Um, this one was just tough for me. But that's the challenge, right? That's part of why I really love doing this podcast, because sometimes it really requires uh, more effort on my part than I ever imagined. Julia Smith, the best in the business, and I were really hoping. Um, to do a story that lent itself to the occasion, to this time of year, Halloween, All Hallows' Eve. You know, there are a lot of different entry points into this time of year. Um, a lot of different traditions, both pagan and Christian. And that happens a lot, um, we find, with 
holidays and antiquities. There's a lot of overlap in traditions and reasons for celebrating, which really says to me that there is so much more that we have in common. No matter where we come from, we all tend to want to honor the passage of time, the fruits of the harvest, the, the labor, the scarcity during winter. These are all moments that all of humanity has always wanted to mark and observe. And, and it always occurs to me, then why is it if we have so many things in common, right? If Christianity and Judaism and Islam all have at least a common reference point for who these great religious figures are, why is there so much damn division among the interpretations of the importance of one versus the other? I, I, I don't know. In that regard, human beings continue to baffle me. Halloween used to be my favorite holiday of the year because it was an opportunity to indulge in the shadow. Um, and I still like it. Um, just not as vigorously, <laughs> I suppose, as I used to. Um, not that I've exercised all of the shadow out of myself. I think I'm just tired of the dark side in life. I don't know. Maybe I'm just lazy these days. Anyway, happy Halloween, y'all. I'll see you next time. Our producer on this episode of LeVar Burton Reads is Julia Smith, the best in the business, y'all. And we have a new researcher this season. That's Lakeisha Lewis. So glad you are aboard, my sister. And our editing and sound design is by the extraordinary Brendan Burns. My thanks to Penguin Classics and the estate of Shirley Jackson for allowing me to read her story today. For a great read at Halloween or anytime, check out her collection, Dark Tales, available in paperback, ebook, or audio format from Penguin Audio. And as always, if you enjoy the podcast, please recommend an episode to a friend who you think might enjoy it. You can also leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. And why not include a story suggestion for us? We love them. We read them. We use them. And if you would prefer to listen to episodes ad-free and listen to exclusive bonus author interviews, you can do that on Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcherpremium.com slash LeVar to start your free trial. LeVar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher and LeVar Burton Entertainment. Our executive producers are Chris C.B. Bannon. Josephine Maharana, she's the boss, and yours truly, LeVar Burton. And I am LeVar Burton. You can find me on Twitter at LeVar Burton and 
LavarBurton.com. I will see you all next time, but you don't have to take my word for it. Stitcher. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.